Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of No Really I'm Fine. Today me and Michael are joined by Matt Jaynes in our Liverpool studio. Hello Matt. Hi there. Are you really fine today? I'm actually doing really well thank you. Have you had a good morning so far? Yeah fantastic thank you. Now Matt is an author and has many career has had many career roles in his life as we'll find out but today we are talking about his latest book Saving Dad. Now, Saving Dad has been described as a remarkable true story about mental health, purpose, hope and redemption. Now, I read this over the weekend, which may seem like quite a task, but it's quite a nice, nice book to to get through. And to be honest, I couldn't put it down. I've really identified with a lot of the themes in in the book and especially with myself being from the world as well mm. um so I felt like I could connect to you straight away and That's I was familiar. I was trying to figure out which grammar school you went to because <laughs> um, I live by rural grammar oh, um, yeah. so I was trying to try and work that out so I, I did feel quite a um a strong connection straight away oh, so that great. was nice I have to say I haven't read the book because I didn't uh I, I did obviously Gemma only got it the book on at the weekend yeah. And, yeah. and it hasn't made my way this is the first time I've seen Gemma in ages yeah. so, but so maybe just really briefly why don't for myself and for the mm. Those who listen who might not have read your book, why don't you tell us a little bit about about it? Of course, yeah. So it charts my journey um, in parallel with my dad's journey. So I first saw my dad ill. Uh, he's been he was diagnosed with bipolar, and I saw him ill when I was three years old, and I'm 47 now. So it's been over four decades. Um, and when I was that age, obviously I didn't understand what was going on. But it was the start of a journey that's carried on for over four decades. Um, many, many extreme highs and and many, many lows too. And it's my coming to terms with his illness, being very upset and frustrated by um, the treatment of his illness, um, which it was pretty ineffective. Um, and then I, I struggled alongside that. So um, you alluded, Gemma, to me having a um, few different careers and my career has been interrupted by mental illness. Um, so I've had to sort of re-engineer my life more than once. Um, but yeah, the journey really charts my dad's journey with mental health and my reaction to it and then my own personal story alongside it. Um, but the, the story <clears throat> really comes to a head earlier this year so it's, it was only written earlier this year where and I say in the prologue you know it's um I've had this, the story in my head for a while because it's been going on for so long um but it was only until this year did I have an ending for the for the book because uh, dad's journey through investigations that I made into mental health and well-being and things that I could do meant that um I finally had an ending for this book that I had in my head for such a long time and and what made you want to write it? Because it's quite a personal thing, isn't it? Mm. Almost sort of a diary for other people to That's read. That's right. 
One um, reason for that very reason. So I'm so conscious of the number of people out there that are struggling. You know, I'm very open about my own vulnerabilities from a mental health perspective. And they're down there in black and white now. But, you know, I'm kind of mid mid 40s now and I've got a lot of experience of this. And um, and I can see a pathway of hope now having Stan will go on to talk about this, I'm sure, later in the interview. But um, I wanted to portray some of that hope to people who might be struggling now, because I know what a difficult journey it is, both through my dad's struggles and my own struggles. I know what that blackness is like to suffer from depression. And there isn't really many options for people out there. So I was very keen to give people a story of hope that's based in truth and based in possibility. And in the story, you don't actually mention the names, do you? Is that right? Your mum and dad's names? I don't, I don't think, yeah. no. Was that deliberate or was it No, it just, really wasn't. I yeah. think that the the book kind of uh, sort of fell out of me. It, you know, obviously I had to be very dedicated and, and committed to writing it, but it wasn't a struggle. It was a story that, that came out quite nicely. And I just started referring to them as mum and dad and yeah. it carried on like that. Um, do you want to know their names? Yes, yeah, I was intrigued. <laughs> right, yeah. so it's Jenny and Tony. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as we've seen, um, well, I've seen a picture on your Twitter recently of, of mm, was it them dancing? It and, was, so yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I volunteer at a charity called Maggie's, which is a cancer support charity. And we uh, we had a, a fundraiser, uh, Strictly Maggie's. So we had um, Shirley Ballas came to judge and my mum took part. So um, there was my dad at the end dancing with mum and everybody else from a position where here's somebody that's had a very, very severe depression. He's also got Parkinson's disease. Mm. Um, but we'll sure go on to talk about it. You know, now he's, he's doing really well. Mm. So it, it offers, as I say, great hope to other people, um, cause he was such a severe case, you know. Mm. And, um, you mentioned very, very early on at the start of the book, you said wherever there was a problem, dad knew how to fix it. Like mm. many father son relationships, dad was my idol and I wanted to be just like him. Did it come as a shock to you then when? you realised there was something wrong? Yes. So when I was three, I didn't understand what was mm-hmm. going on. Um, but then it it really came into my consciousness at age 19. So I was doing my first year university exams, came home to study. And I was driven home by mum and then walked in and dad was just a shell of the person that I knew. So he'd been riding a wave I think of, um, of of wellness plus a bit of mania um, during my younger years. But then the first depressive episode that really sort of knocked me off my feet was when I was at uni. And he was a, yeah, he was a, a shell, a shadow of the man that I knew. And like you say, he was my idol. He, he had the answer to everything when I was younger. And then I saw a man that I didn't recognise, mm. very emotional, physically looked older, more vulnerable and he kind of fell into my arms Mm. and as a 19 year old that was scary um, because he was usually the one protecting me Um, but the the scene I saw as a three-year-old was then replayed but uh, it was me doing the cradling this time Mm. Um, and that really started the journey then of me truly understanding okay this there's something different and and wrong here Um, and started the understanding and the journey of okay so dad's got a mental illness and all of the the highs and lows of that and the different treatment options that he then 
um, went on to experience. And uh, yeah, just a, a very much of a roller coaster of a, of a journey, really. Mm. So was that was that the first time that you sort of saw him like that for you, or was it maybe more that you were more emotionally aware at nineteen, sort of leaving home, and it maybe took that going away to come back to see that? Do you think? Maybe? No, I think it, it was the first time that it was that severe because I don't think um, I would have been able to avoid mm. understanding that. I mean, at, at an earlier age, I think um, as an earlier teenager, I'd have known that you know this this isn't right. There's there's an illness here, so um, I couldn't avoid it really, and then it needed addressing head on. Um, and it's been the same, the same struggle really up until, up until now, you know, he's been treated with many different, uh, antidepressants. I list them in the book. Um, he's had a lot of electric convulsive therapy, ECT, so electric shock to the brain, put under general anesthetic and an electric shock, uh, every two weeks as a, as a consistent treatment, which is, you know, pretty brutal. This was, this was when you were younger, is that right? It ran right the way through, actually. So really? from 19, um, so in the book, I talk about a conversation that he and I had. And he was telling me that his father, my grandfather, used to go to have ECT. And my dad used to take him for those sessions. Um, also as a 19-year-old, strangely enough. So his father had the treatment. But yeah, my dad's had them. Oh, he's had many. I mean, he's probably had 300 plus courses over his lifetime, which is a huge, huge amount that surprised me the most because I feel like those forms of therapy aren't talked about enough. That's like right. For, um, for someone like, like myself and, and Michael, I'm sure we both have um, experience of mental illness, but at the mm. lower level, which yeah. I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying, but not yeah. as that severe. So yeah. it's quite uncommon for us to talk yeah. about ECT. Yeah, and I think it's something we need to talk about more because it's a reality for some people. Um, you know, you only need to go to Twitter to see that there's people still having it today. So, yes, so dad's had it from uh, from the age when I was 19. So it'd make him, what, 49. And um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a serious treatment and it doesn't come without side effects. Short term memory is mm. um, very severely affected, but it's considered a, a last line treatment um, yeah, for drug resistant yeah. depression. I have to say, well, when I when I suffered with, with my darkest time in depression, mm. it, ne- that was never brought up. No, and I and I think maybe myself and maybe some other people might think that it's not actually something that is done anymore. So much anymore. No, mm. it's. I mean, the big, probably the most obvious cultural reference for it is the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where Jack Nicholson mm. has it. Um, but there's very little else really in our culture that gives you a reference point for what it's like. But it is happening. Um, in the UK and other places. And yeah, so the the options for someone suffering from very severe depression like my dad are very limited. Uh, the list of antidepressants that he received under multiple psychiatrists across the country was the same. So he would be given um, an antidepressant or, or, or more than one, and he just didn't respond. So time and time and time again, we'd be left with a picture where he was very unwell despite the drugs and he would be given these electric shocks. So you'd be typically given a course of, say, between 12 and 15. And we'd see a very familiar pattern where after the first four electric shocks, we would see some light Mm -hmm. in his personality. After eight, 
he was beginning to come round and it's when you begin to say, okay, it's, it's beginning to work. And then after 12, we'd start to see something more akin to his normal personality. Mm. For me as well, when I was reading the book, I noticed a, a pattern almost um, in your dad's routine and, and similar to yours really later on in the book. But mm. first with your dad, I noticed the fact that as soon as he had treatment, he was well and then he seemed to go through a pattern of compulsively buying houses and, and yeah. cars and things yeah. and then I, f- I felt like as soon as he had a setback he would set back in his own mental health then as well yeah that's right so he would what when he was sort of recovered or we think he was recovered and he wasn't displaying sort of depressive symptoms you know the nature of bipolar disorder is that um, people can go into mania and one of the characteristics of that is to go into spending mm. and uh, yeah he, he did that so that was overseas properties in Spain um, doing huge extensions on our house buying sports cars all sorts of things quite big financial outlays um, he's a very smart man too you know it wasn't all done on, on a whim it, you know a lot of it was strategically done but his level of um, risk loving as a result being driven by this um bipolar was was quite remarkable really um and then as you probably you know understood from the book um it would come to a kind of crescendo really and then he'd have another another um depressive episode and then we'd be back in the same routine of needing to find a way to lift him he would usually then be given more drugs which wouldn't work and we were back in the throes of electric shock treatment Mm. um and he had to retire age 50 um through mental illness so what, what he was, was still he, a young man. What was he doing? What he was, was a chartered civil engineer and chartered water engineer. So um, he had a very senior job in what was Northwest Water. So today, United Utilities. Mm. Um, and he used to run the whole of the Wirral um, and then Liverpool and uh, then went to head office. And yeah, he had a very senior job. But when he was uh, been working 32 years, he just couldn't get back. Mm. He, was just, he was just too unwell didn't find a pathway back. Um, so then started a, another kind of life really. And that's where investment in property started. And, uh, that ro- kind of roller coaster was expressed, you know, his illness was expressed through that journey, then through property and acquisition and, um, and then sale of those properties as he got, as he got ill again. And those routines that your dad went through in terms of buying new things all the time would you say that was reflected in your change of career would you say that had an effect on your career I would say yeah what happened was I after graduating from uni I went straight to London and went on a um, a graduate training program very good job in uh, marketing and advertising at BT and I was very ambitious and I think driven by grammar school education and seeing dad have some commercial success um, but I found it very hard to find meaning in work because I'd seen such great suffering at home. I found it difficult to, for the for commercial things to, to resonate with me. You know, is it just, is it just another sale? Is it just more money? And when something very serious was going on at home. So I was really on a journey for 20 odd years to try and find my purpose in life. And that's what the book charts alongside my dad's illness is my own search for purpose and meaning in light of this very very difficult illness going on at home where I was trying to reconcile that 
and with my own work and was this meaningful to me did it give me a sense of purpose um and it turned out that no it didn't mm. um so i had to look to other things and really go full circle on trying to find an answer to dad's illness and and now i work with other people and other companies in helping them with their mental well-being and that's given me purpose in life mm. so it's kind of come full circle really it's quite redemptive mm. quite a redemptive story for me mm. and in in the book um you went to grammar school and mm -hmm. you mentioned having palpitations when you were due to take your 11 plus yeah thankfully i don't know i never took that <laughs> <laughs> <Lucky> you. yeah <laughs> um and there was also a pattern then of when um later on in life when you were going for, for jobs and things like that mm. would you say that a lot of kids nowadays are under pressure with exams and and with you know with the scary thought of the future ahead in terms of their own mental health yeah and I, I do empathize because mm. I think they're under even more pressure than I was then uh in what the was the early 80s really um yeah because kids are tested so much younger now mm. and I can remember those feelings of I've got to pass this at all costs I've got to pass mm. this the alternative seemed to be um like a doomsday scenario. I don't know where I got that from. It wasn't from mum and dad. I didn't felt, feel pushed. I think it was just the sense that there was this momentum. And, um, you know, growing up on the world, there, there's this thing goes on with grammar schools. And, and yeah, that extended through my life. So university exams, I felt the same. And then in jobs, I felt very under pressure to perform and excel at exceptionally high standard. Um, and I think, yeah, kids these days are under more pressure. They've obviously got the now increased pressure of the spotlight of mm. social media and how they're performing in public like every day. And judgment, such judgment, especially visual judgment on things like Instagram, where people mm. are taking pictures of themselves and the, the idea of being perfect and maybe trying to follow in the footsteps of celebrity. Mm. You know, that wasn't the same when I was a kid. Even um, when I was right. younger, yeah. it wasn't, Instagram didn't exist, no. which I'm kind of glad. Yeah, realized. yeah, I think it's really hard and it's, I don't think it's a coincidence. That's why we're seeing such an increase in anxiety and depression in younger people. Self-harm at school, I never, I don't think ever um, encountered anybody at school that self-harmed, whereas now I understand um, that it's quite common, mm. which is which is frightening, really. Um, and just keeping on pressures a little bit you know was there pressures throughout your life because of all of this situation with your your relationship with your father did you find that that became strained or did you grow closer together because of the 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 conditions that he had we grew closer I mean we've always been a, a very supportive family I say in the book we weren't overly sort of demonstrative in the sense mm. that we weren't one of these families that say I love you all the time um but you know, like I said, but he was, he's my idol. Um, but that grew stronger through his suffering. I felt very, very compelled to help. So, uh, so it's been a situation where myself and my mum have done, you know, an awful lot to try and help him over the years. And it's like a little trio really of, of trying our best to, to get him well. Mm. Um, but now I think, you know, as I explored later in the book, I've got a predisposition through my nervous system to to struggle um with mental illness 
and and so was my dad and that's what I came then to understand is what's the the root cause of of mental illness is it's based in something called the autonomic nervous system and um mine naturally and, and genetically isn't in something called homeostasis it's not in balance and because of that imbalance I'm vulnerable mm-hmm. and and as are many many other people and that's just something that really it's it's not widely understood um I don't know if you're going to come on to talk about that um but the the answers that I found in in for my dad's um finding health for him laid in something and science that existed or was known and being discovered and, and explored 60 years ago um, and I had to unearth that from history to be able to understand fully what happens in somebody that's mentally unwell and then what do we do to try and regain mental health in someone that's struggling because because at that time imagine you know the, the the discussions that we have about mental health now mm. us sitting in this room discussing mental health mm. weren't there so you had to find all that out yourself is that right yeah i mean it was through almost desperation um you know by by this time um when i started studying i had seen dad suffering for 40 years um and it was you know incredibly bleak and the response from psychiatrist was always the same it was i'll have some pills which never worked and then oh okay then we better try another electric pill. shock therapy oh, yeah. Or, or yeah or another pill and, and, and um, double them up on each other um, but it usually ended in electric shock therapy and um through sheer you know desperation of seeing someone suffer for so long i said like, okay um i'm gonna turn my life fully towards trying to find an answer not only for him but for other people too and you know the good news is i found it i found it um i say it was kind of hiding in plain sight really buried very deep um so i had um when i left london i came back up to the Wirral and um started a business I became unwell through stress of trying to run this business on my own for multiple number of years without breaks, without holidays. And I ended up selling that business and that allowed me to spend time to fully research and understand, you know, what is mental illness? What do we need to do to restore mental health? What does it mean for the body, the brain, the mind? So I studied neuroscience, I studied psychology, mental health, and the multitude of other things, aspects of functional medicine, um, to try and bring together all of these schools of thought to finally find an answer for my dad, which is why it's called Saving Dad, um, of all that combination of all those sort of three or four years of work to first understand it and then to find answers that would help him. What do you think you would have done if ECT didn't work at the time? before you found out another way? Oof, I dread to think. Mm. I dread to think what the answer would be. Um, I mean, the book is, um, it's a story of hope, but it does have some tough discussions in there um, around suicide attempts. And I was going to come on to that. Wait, yeah. Um, You know, it's a difficult conversation for people to have, but it's been a, a real part of my life. I've been there in the room. And it's something we need to talk about. It's very real. 12 people a day in the UK die by suicide. Um, so I don't know how the story would have ended, mm. but I know how it could it could have ended, um, having having seen that play out. So we've got to we've got to find more 
approaches for people. And I just hope that the work I've done can be further explored um, to, to further help more people. Because mm. I know there'll be people listening to this now that are desperate for answers. It, it's really interesting when you say that you've almost, you know, you've dedicated your life to researching and all this. Did you, you know, in a way it's, it's a really lovely thing that you've, you've spent all of this time doing that. But also at the same time, there's a bit of, of maybe just for me listening to your story for the first time, that's mm. quite upsetting, uh, not upsetting, but do you ever feel that you may have lost out on anything by doing this? Or actually, do you feel like actually I have, I've given myself a greater purpose by doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I feel the opposite of having yeah. missed out. I think that yeah. I'm, fully awake now as to my true purpose in life and I think I might have struggled for longer had I not turned my life fully towards this because it's not something that I can ignore when it's been an ever-present in my life um so no I feel it's been very redemptive for me and given me a real purpose and a real fierce determination to get the word out they're doing things like this to spread the word and give people hope that there's another way. You don't just have to listen to what a GP says and be given a pill. You know, ultimately you have got the the power to resolve this. Mm. It doesn't need to cost a lot of money. It, it's a um, series of things that you've got total control of yourself. So that, that message has to get out there. Mm. And the thing that I wasn't surprised about, which is quite sad really, is in the book during your dad's first attempt to take his own life and mm. you you and your mum tried to get help but mm. you were told it wasn't a serious enough attempt yeah, at, at life right. and I feel like that still happens today yeah I think you're absolutely right I think there's um, a real shortage isn't there a provision of services at the acute end and at the the less acute end as well so yes we were we were on a boat at the time and um yeah dad tried to smother himself with a pillow through his complete desperation and mum went off to talk to, to ring um, emergency services and they said it's not enough, a serious enough attempt to warrant being admitted to hospital. And then, you know, a little while later down the road, he cut his wrist with a Stanley knife. Then it was then it was deemed severe enough. But could it have been prevented? You know, if the services were sufficient at the time, they were given a warning and they didn't respond. You know, it's not the individual's fault. It's a systemic mm. problem um, that the provision of care isn't good enough in this mm. country. So, yeah, that's that's what it led to. It led to a very, very serious suicide attempt where he could easily have lost his life had, you know, a few more minutes gone by, really. Mm. He was bleeding out. And I have to say, <laughs> the bit where you talk about that in the book is was very visual but also very respectful in terms of not going into too much detail but yeah. at the same time yeah I could imagine myself being in that room yeah. with you yeah it's a difficult balance that one mm. because it's a true story and I think we have to talk about these things but I didn't want to um create too much of a, a graphic image in people's heads I mean I've got it I was there so I knew what it was like but um Hopefully I played the right balance for people to realise the seriousness of it without it being too, you know, horrifying, really. What was going through your mind at the moment? Was it just a reaction? Time, yeah, It was an automatic reaction. So um, I think, you know, it's almost like something else took over. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I first heard, heard the blood and then saw the blood. And um, so, yeah, I just went into a almost automatic pilot. And they say in the book that, 
I didn't know that it was there, but there was a dressing gown cord on the back of the door. I mean, that's not something I was consciously aware of, but that's what I used to stop the flow of blood. Mm -hmm. So I went into a very automatic response and then sort of screamed down to my mum uh, to call, my, call an ambulance. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, was, it wasn't a, didn't seem like a very conscious thing, mm -hmm. um, but it was a bit of a battle. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in today's episode, you can get the proper advice you need. We aren't experts, but the Samaritans provide free, confidential support for people experiencing feelings of distress or despair. You can phone them 24 hours a day on 116-123 or visiting thesamaritans.org.uk. The Diana Award also provides a crisis messenger service which gives young people 24-hour crisis support across the UK. If you are a young person in crisis, you can text DA for free to 85258. That's DA to 85258. And your mum, through all this, seems like that figure that's mm. keeping everyone yeah. together. Yeah. Would you say that's, that's true? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, if you met her, you would have no idea. You'd have no idea what she's been through. They've been married 54 years, uh, ups and downs and ups and downs, all the treatment and the hospitalizations. And it's been a real journey. So how the strength that she has, uh, it's quite incredible. And a few people have said to me, I'd really like to know more about your mum. So maybe she should write her version mm -hmm. or it should be a sequel. But um, Saving yeah. dad and saving Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah she's remarkable. Mm. Absolutely. I don't think it's unusual to see that the women in families are, can be the, the ones that are the strong, strong figures. But certainly in, in my case, I was um, speaking to someone the other day and they sort of said, oh, yes, yeah, so we just had the responsibility as a as a as a wife and a mother to be there, which is something that that you talk about in, a, in, an, in an age today maybe isn't there as much anymore. Yeah, I think things have changed, haven't they? Yeah. You know, societally, they've changed hugely. I think in their area, they were born in the 40s. Um, either mid or just after the war. Yeah. And, um, you know, that kind of keep calm and carry on attitude really sunk mm -hmm. into the into the minds of people. Um, but I think you, ha you have to, what I've come to understand is you have to be blessed with the right biology and biochemistry and physiology to be able to get through such um, mm -hmm. amounts of stress without it re resolving and re so resulting in mental illness really she's got a, a genetic makeup that allows her to get through those things easier may not be the right word but compared to myself and my dad who mm. are more vulnerable um and that comes in this balance of this thing called the autonomic nervous system so just just to keep on that scientific strand of stuff we don't usually talk about science okay. yeah. we don't know we just don't we just don't really because yeah. we don't have, have the knowledge in it sure. Sure. but you know like you seem like you obviously you've you've done a lot of research in that scientific mm. side it might be just worth explaining for us and our listeners a bit more about that scientific approach because uh, you sound a bit like me and us being journalists we like to have our facts yeah sure up. so it's, I, it's important so yeah. i feel like i guess you wanted to f get your facts about right i need to see the science behind this is that right yeah i mean i saw that the only way to get dad well was to understand exactly mm. you know get my facts right as you, you might say and that meant understanding the brain and the body 
And so listeners might understand it from a physical health point of view that as they listen and as we sit here, your body is without any conscious input from yourselves. It's regulating your body temperature, your blood pressure and your heart rate, things like that. And that's achieved through something called the autonomic nervous system. So autonomic is just a fancy word for automatic. So you don't have any control over it, but your body takes care of those processes for you to retain physical health. And the same thing is true of mental health. And it's the thing that isn't understood. It isn't talked about, but it's the answer to mental well-being. So without going into too much detail, there are two branches to this autonomic nervous system. And those two branches need to be in balance for us to regain our health. And some people have a genetically genetic predisposition to being strong on one side or the other. And that makes them vulnerable to, say, anxiety on one side or depression on the other. And people that live somewhere in the middle, in a state of what we call homeostasis, which is just equilibrium, those two branches working nicely together, mm-hmm. they typically are less vulnerable to mental health problems. But people that are predisposed to it, like myself, we have a genetically predetermined and unique biochemistry, physiology and biology and psychology um, that makes us more vulnerable. But the great news is once you understand it, there are things you can do and things you can avoid doing, which help to bring you back into balance. So if you're on one branch, you can do certain things, which means eating certain kinds of foods. It means doing certain kinds of exercise and um, avoiding some things too. Or if you're on the other side, you know, you, you marry it up with, with how you are pre- you know, genetically predisposed on this, on this system. Um, and that's how I, I mean, without giving the, the end of the book away, that's how I helped my dad was I identified that he was something called a parasympathetic dominant. So the parasympathetic nervous system is one branch of this nervous system we're talking about. Yeah. Now, things like Prozac, that's an SSRI, that's a serotonin-based antidepressant. Serotonin is the primary neurotransmitter on one branch of this nervous system. So if you're already out of balance like dad was as a parasympathetic dominant, if you give him serotonin, it pushes him further out of balance. Right. You can understand that. Mm. And what we want to do is the opposite. We want to stimulate the other branch called the sympathetic branch of his nervous system. And we do that. When we do that, it brings you back into balance. So it means all of your neurotransmitters, your biochemistry, your physiology, your hormones, they all get back into balance. And you can understand it, say, from a point of view of anxiety of, say, heart's beating fast and you might be sweating palpitations there's things that you can do to calm that branch so that's an overactive sympathetic nervous system anxiety so what we do is you can do things to calm that branch of the nervous system to regain equilibrium in that nervous system and then the symptoms of anxiety disappear and similarly for depression we want to boost the parasympathetic branch and you can do that by nutrition through supplements through certain kinds of exercise and certain ways of reframing thoughts uh, to bring yourself back into balance so that kind of in a nutshell is the is the science <laughs> and i guess that's probably maybe why that for anyone who has been on sort of antidepressants and things like that you end up seeing different people on different types of exactly. ones exactly because people go one way or the other exactly and, and are you saying there if i'm getting this right that sometimes there isn't a right way to diagnose that you have to do the the 
the test the, the errors and well, testing. Yeah, well, this is where it gets interesting because if you look at mental illness as compared to physical illness, mm. there's no biomarker. So normally, if you went into a GP surgery with diabetes, they would test insulin levels and things so mm -hmm. to find out right. what's going on. Now, if you go to a GP surgery and say, oh, I'm feeling a bit down, I'm feeling lethargic, struggling to get out of bed. You can't just it, go and get a CT scan. Yeah, anyway. exactly. It's not what they do. Now, there is a biomarker. Um, there's a biomarker called heart rate variability. Now, what heart rate variability allows you to do is to measure the balance of your autonomic nervous system. Right. And it's very readily available. So there's no reason why every GP in this country shouldn't have a very inexpensive heart rate variability monitor. And when you go and you can put your finger in this little unit, it tests your HRV and gives you a snapshot of the balance of this autonomic nervous system. So if someone were to come into a GP surgery and they were parasympathetic dominant like my dad, yeah. to give them an SSRI, a serotonin-based antidepressant, would be crazy, yeah. make them worse. So by that, we, you know, we've got to get to this kind of diagnostics so that it doesn't mean that people come into a GP surgery, just get a blanket response of, hey, take the flavour of the month antidepressant, which these days are SSRIs. Um, and for some people, it makes them worse because everyone's treated the same. Well, the truth is that everyone isn't the same. Everyone's got a, a unique makeup. Um, a biochemistry, physiology, and and balancing their autonomic nervous system. So we've got to start, if people want to go down the route of prescribing and taking antidepressants, start matching them to their natural balance of their autonomic nervous system to regain health. Otherwise, you know, that's why people, some people say, oh yeah, it worked great for me. And other people, other people say, oh, it was a disaster for me. I felt terrible. Mm. And that's why. Mm. So why do you think that there isn't one of these on everyone's desk is that a lack of knowledge a lack of funding or i think it's partly a lack of knowledge because it's relatively new right. we're talking the last two or three years really? where it's come in yeah yeah it's pretty new it used to be limited to hospitals and private mm. medical centers but now you can buy them off amazon mm -hmm. <laughs> um you can get them in the form of chest straps so elite athletes started using them most so for instance if you were um training high very high level elite say footballer you can measure whether you're overtraining by measuring the balance of this same nervous system. So that's what we're talking about, physical health. If you overtrain, then you'll go into something called active recovery. So your body forces you into parasympathetic dominance. And what it's basically telling you is you better have some rest. You better not go on that 10K run that you thought you were going to go on. Otherwise, that your body... Um, will break down. So it's an early warning system for physical too. But now it's moving into slowly into mental health. Um, you know, it's large, a lot of this is coming out of the US, um, but it's something I work with and it's something that GPs need to need to do more with. It's, it's a no-brainer. It's inexpensive. Mm. It can help um, everyone really. Mm. And it'll help cut costs in the NHS. Oh, sorry, I feel like we went I went went off topic from talking about your book, but that was actually really interesting. Was, I feel, yeah. I feel yeah. like I've learned more. <laughs> I was like, you know, when you learn, I was like, I learned something. Today. Well, there is a glossary in the back of the book. I know that you know. I've tried not to go too heavy on science, but it, it does talk about some of the science to help the journey of the story along. Um, but there's a glossary at the back if uh, if you want to know any more. <laughs> what did your mum and dad think of the book? I mean, I presume you had a conversation with them beforehand about mm. what you were going to do. What, yeah. what was that like? Well, I think the first thing is that I was very clear that it was my story, first of all. I mean, thankfully, 
um, they're very supportive. But um, first and foremost, it was my story to tell. And it was a story that I felt had to be told. Um, but yeah, I mean, they've, they really enjoyed it. Um, Dad actually uh, has a, a therapist that he talks to. So she's got the book. So that was a nice safe environment for, that, for the story to be talked about rather than in sort of the cold light of day. Because as you know, having read it, um, there's some difficult stuff in there. Um, but yeah, they're very, very supportive. They're very supportive of everything that I do. I'm really lucky. Mm. And dad's been a great uh, sort of patient in inverted commas. He's very willing to take on my advice mm. on what he can do to regain his mental health. So um, yeah, I'm really fortunate. And from the book, you also do courses now, don't you? Yeah, so about um, a couple of years ago, so I I'd, I'd studied an awful lot and learnt a lot of things that I felt could be helpful to other people. I hadn't kind of cracked it with my dad yet because he's you know, such a severe case, but I felt that I'd learnt a lot that would help other people. So I spent a year actually writing a um, 25,000 word manuscript and then uh, shooting a, a course, a video course that is now freely available online to help people. So the first videos in the series they go into more detail about the science they help people to understand what's going on in their in their brain and bodies and then it gives some practical classes as to what to do to to regain balance so that's freely available to everyone online uh, under the url thethrivecourse.com mm-hmm. and you, you talk about a struggle with wanting to make that free mm. or whether you should mm. charge just talk a bit about yeah that. so i'd invested a year of my life into that course um and my initial thought would be, was that well i've invested so much time this is something that i really have to charge for um to get kind of the, the time back <laughs> um but i had a real struggle real internal struggle as to what i should do and what the the, the right thing to do was so i gained, got some advice from my mentor and some friends and they confirmed really what i believed that this has got to be free so it is now happily freely available for anybody uh, to go and um, jump in and see if they can help themselves mm. but it was a bit of a bit of a struggle for mm-hmm. me yeah mm. and in the book as well it talks about when you when you met your wife yes <laughs> yes so Pauline uh, she's Canadian um, yeah so it's quite a funny story actually I literally just saw her picture on Facebook <laughs> um, I didn't know her she happened to be standing next to a good friend of mine and we were texting about the Liverpool game and I just kind of said, who's the girl in the picture on Facebook? And uh, yeah, so to cut a long story short, that led to me going, she was in London at the time, working on London 2012. And uh, we met and uh, kind of love blossomed really. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, we've been married three years. So she now lives up here, originally Canadian. Mm-hmm. Um, and then via London. So she's back up here on the Wirral now living with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we've got an amazing relationship. So she lost her first husband, Michael, to cancer, uh, leukemia. Uh, that was back in, in Toronto. And when we met, I was aware that we had this common connection, this deep emotional bond mm. um, through her suffering. You know, she helped nurse Michael for five years and I could kind of empathise with that suffering um, through my dad's experience. So, um, yeah... So it's kind of a nice, nice story, really, that we were able to understand each other's journeys. Um, oh, so, and what did she think about the book? 
She's read it seven times. <laughs> yeah, so she was, I, she wanted to read it in kind of manuscript form, but I didn't let her. I said, no, you've got to have it in paper form. So she had a chair and uh, a cup of tea and she, like you, read it cover to cover. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's some stuff in there she didn't know. And of course she got to know my whole story, which was really nice. Um, but yeah, she loved it. Mm. Yeah, so she's probably on her eighth reading by now. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned coming back up to the, the Wirral and coming back home and and to support your family. You know, did you feel like you ever had missed out on anything coming home where you were like, no, actually, this is part of my journey and I need to come back and be that support to my family? Yeah, it felt, f- felt very much like coming home. It really did. So I enjoyed the bright lights of London. I was down there sort of 15 years, I guess, in total. Um it gets too much, doesn't it? Oh, well, it did for me. <laughs> yeah, it's the the good things are great, yeah. but I lack community. I think uh, that was difficult, um, and you know, there's nowhere quite like Merseyside for its no. friendliness and its um, sense of humour, and just people care. You know, the people rally around much more here. Um, but actually, I moved them up. So they were living on the South Coast at the time. So oh, really? Yeah, so they had moved down South because they're originally from the South. I was from up here, but they were originally from the South. And um, things were, were so awful that the only way I could see the, the, the full picture working was that if I was close by. So I moved them up and eventually sold their house and they rented for a while and then bought here. So they're now kind of 500 yards down the road, which was nice. Mm. But yeah, it was very much homecoming for me. Um, I love it. I feel like that's important in someone's mental health journey, you know, to go home. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, with my mental health conditions, I've moved around the country so mm. many different times. And, and I've, and it, it's interesting hearing people, other people that we speak to, mm. they talk about having to move to get away from something or having to move to get back to a sense of home and warmth. And it is interesting hearing that with many people's mental health stories. Yeah, I've got an interesting story because I um, I remember having my first panic attack while I was in Spain. So I went mm. to Spain. We had a Spanish villa at the time, you know, in theory, lovely. Everyone, I'm sure, it's like the sound of that in December. Um, but I've learned that illness follows you. Mm. And um, I, my dad had to get a, me a, a ticket home. I was really struggling. So, um, yeah, illness follows you. And I think home whatever that might be, you know, that might not be a physical home necessarily. It might be a psychological home for people. But for me, being around a community which is supportive rather than a transitory one of London where people really don't stop to ask how you're doing, that was an important part of my journey really, yeah. I really connected with that because I lived in Lancaster for four years right. and I suffered with panic attacks right. and I thought, when I moved back to the world with mum and dad, everything will be fine. Mm. I won't have any more panic attacks. Mm. And so when that did happen, yeah. I very much learned that as well. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the answer I think comes from inside rather than outside. And there are things that we can do and we, we've got to look after ourselves and be careful about the things we do, the people we mix with, the, the food we put in our mouths, the, the self-care that we undertake. Um, and, and external environments, I think, are part of it, but, like you found it, they, illness can follow you, can't mm. it? Regardless mm. of where you are, that's such a that's a really stark phrase. Your it can follow you, and it's really mm. that's really stuck for me. You know, interestingly, just another question as well that you know, 
it's really nice to hear another man talking about mm. a lot more men talk about mental health now but it's still you know when you said about the 12 people a day to yeah. taking taking their own lives yeah and the percentage of that which is men is more than women which That's is right so sad so actually to hear you to talk about this and talk about you being a man and now being yeah. your dad as well yeah i suppose people do struggle with their their father child you know the father-son relationship mm. in terms of speaking about mental health yeah, I think I've got an important role to play. I've got a life experience that means it's almost a duty now for me to talk about it. I can, I'm fortunate I can talk about it. It's been such a long road that I can talk very comfortably and openly about it. Um, my identity doesn't rely upon me being, you know, hyper-masculine, strong in inverted commas. You know, I think there's more strength in being vulnerable than there is in having a veneer, wearing a mask mm -hmm. and trying to pretend to the world that you're a strong man because we're human beings at the end of the day and we do have our vulnerabilities and I won't stop. You know, I'm, I'll carry on talking about it and hopefully start a, a path that people can, can follow um, because there's no shame in it. Um, as I said, it, a, a lot of it is, is genetics. So you can't hide from it. Um, and we've got to talk more about it. We've got to support each other more. We've got to ask each other how we're doing. Are you doing okay? If you're not doing okay, then, you know, there's, there are things you can do. Um, but it all starts with a conversation and people not being afraid of talking up. You know, my, my dad's generation weren't blessed with that really, you know, born in, born in the Second World War. It's a lot of fear. Um, and I guess that would be enough to, make people, make a lot of people just not talk about their feelings in that era. And um, now, fortunately, you know, we've come a long way since then. People are beginning to speak up, but there's a heck of a lot, long way to go, I think. So what, what's life like now and how is your dad now? So uh, the great news is he hasn't had any treatment for uh, nearly a year. It'll be a year in, on January the 4th and he is off 95% of his medication. Um, and he's doing really well. So he's got Parkinson's as well. So his mobility is affected. Mm. Um, but he is, you know, far, far, far better than he's been for years and years and years. And that's down to, and you, yeah. well, well, <laughs> partly, partly me, um, uh, partly mum, and partly dad. Mm. Um, cause you know, he had to be strong enough and willing enough to, to, to do it. Do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, you, there's got to be some fire in the belly still there to do that. Um, but he came from a place of, you know, very, very difficult place where he was hospitalised for the seventh time earlier this year. Um, but yes, so since then, um, when I started this protocol with him, he now follows a strict nutritional and natural supplement protocol, which is very, very carefully designed for his specific autonomic type. So this parasympathetic dominant that we've been talking about, mm. um, there's a series of natural supplements that stimulate his sympathetic nerves and he has a very strict diet to fuel his brain and body. So one of the things that doesn't happen enough in, in people that are depressed is they don't have the right food to fuel their brain, the physical fuels that they need biologically to, to lift themselves out of depression. So um, things like red meat, which is kind of a lot of it's bastardized in, in society now where the 
um, you know, there's an environmental link um, mm. and uh, with vegetarianism and veganism, but red meat actually plays a very, very important role for brain health when it comes to depression. So it contains a multitude of things, but it, one, two of the things that it contains are precursors, two specific precursors to the neurotransmitters that you need to lift yourself out of depression if you're a parasympathetic dominant. Um, and then healthy fats are the other thing. So omega-3, EPA, um, found in fish and found in, um, well, supplements. But there's what dad use, has uh, to, to give him his brain. Um, your, your neurons are uh, insulated um, by something called myelin. And your, for your neurotransmitters to, or your neurons rather, to talk to each other, your neurons uh, need to have this insulation and they're, they're made of fats basically. So you need to fuel your brain with these natural fats to be able to, for your neurons to be able to communicate with each other efficiently. And of course, one of those things is mood. Um, so feeding your brain with the right things is really important. Mm. It's really interesting. Like we could just have a whole episode. I know, of I literally <laughs> just think I could maybe just, we should have a separate one on it. Yeah. Maybe just have you come in like every every episode and just yeah. go, my fact of the day. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've learned so much. Yeah, I feel like that's a nice nice way to... Oh, what, one last thing I did actually want to ask you. What sort of advice would you give to um, perhaps a younger person who has is going through the same thing that you went through in terms of watching their mom or their dad struggle with the mental illness, what advice would you give to them? I think the first thing is acknowledge that it's, this is difficult. This is really difficult and then share it. I think that's the most important step. The first step is to share it and talk about it. You know, my journey has been long um, and quite complicated. And I don't think if someone had, spoken to me when I was, I guess, 19, really, um, they wouldn't have been able to give me a magic bullet. Mm. But just having someone walk alongside me through that process, um, I don't think I really had that. I kept it to myself. And I think sharing it with someone, especially now where people are beginning to understand mental health more, would have been really, really helpful because I probably struggled in silence, really, and was going through exams and didn't didn't share it with my housemates at university what was going on at home and that probably compounded the problem um the other thing i'd like to say is that there is tremendous hope so you know a lot of the picture out there is quite bleak um but there is tremendous hope and there is a pathway through and as i said before it's not an expensive pathway it's just finding the right people with the right knowledge um if anyone's listening, please do try my course, thethrivecourse.com. It's completely free. Um, they can also visit mattjanes.com and there's further resources there. Um, we'll put all the links uh, in the description Great. for people. So Great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the first step, not wanting to bombard people, is is to reach out for help. Don't, don't suffer in silence. And then... Um, hopefully you can get on the right pathway um, do research online for ways to support the nervous system it, it is out there when you when you kind of look for it um, in my experience you know the, the drugs don't work that's been my personal experience um, it's not everyone's experience so for people where that's the case don't lose hope there's another there's another avenue there's another pathway to full health I mean I have full health now I don't take any medication um, 
and my dad's doing really well. So I think we're good examples that, that you don't need to to fear that there aren't alternatives for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. It's oh, you're welcome. Really it's been great talking you. to you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I think I've learned a lot as well. So yeah. thank you. Very much. Great stuff. Cheers. Mm-hmm.